0: Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to continue from last week uh, in the beauty of oneness. And we'll finish up this uh, next uh, roughly 12 verses. And I want to give you a little heads up this morning. As we now turn the corner, as I alluded to last week, and as I will remind you this week, um, if you have good doctrine, which is what the first three chapters are here in the book of Ephesians, uh, then you ought to have some duty that, that also is good and pleasant and reminds us of who Jesus is. It needs to relate to action. And I want to be kind and I want to be considerate. And my goal is to simply draw our attention to what God's word plainly states. But I want to tell you this is one of those things in the church that I think we could use some improvement on. And so before we get into the Word this morning, I'm going to give you a little test. It's a real easy test, okay? I think you can all pass it. I'm virtually certain of it. Don't think you're going to have any problem. And uh, for those of you in the back, I'll, I'll read these. Um, and so my test is this. Same question for everything. Is this the Word of God? That happens to be a Book of Mormon. If you said yes, you have to leave. Um, this is 50 Days in Heaven by uh, Randy Alcorn. Is this the Word of God? Uh, no, no, it's not. Uh, this is Harvest by Pastor Chuck Smith. Is this the Word of God? No, it's not. Uh, this one is uh, Refuting Evolution by Jonathan Safardi. Is this the Word of God? No, it's not. How about this one? Revealing Islam by Dr. Ergen Kanner. Nope. One of my personal favorites, Jesus Style by Gail Irwin, is this the Word of God? It's not. How about The Tribulation in the Church by Pastor Chuck Smith? Also not the Word of God. Uh, 90 Minutes in Heaven by Don Piper? Not the Word of God. Going to mess with all y'all. The Harbinger. Also not the Word of God. The Master's Plan for the Church by Dr. John MacArthur. Not the Word of God. How about The Character of God by R.C. Sproul? Also, not the Word of God. Why am I doing this to you all? How about The Gospel of Grace by Pastor Chuck Smith? Mm-mm. Not the Word of God. How about the Calvary Chapel Ministers' Manual, and the Calvary Distinctives, also not the Word of God. Why did I just do this five-minute long test? Every one of those books I personally have read. I can say to you that in some way, shape, or form, every one of those books has some biblical truth in them. But not one of them is the Word of God. As great as any man's writing may be, not the Word of God. So let's make sure that we're getting our doctrine from the Word of God. Amen? So if your book disagrees with what Scripture says, guess which one you believe? The Bible, the Word of God. Everyone, do you notice I included the Book of Mormon? There is biblical truth in the Book of Mormon. That may shock you, but it's in there. You know why? They plagiarized the King James Bible. So there's actually truth in it. That's why people get messed up, because they hold up, they, they grab their copy. You know, the big one now is the Harbinger. They take out their copy of the, well, you know, look what it says about America. Some of those things may be true, some of them may not be true. Books are books. The word of God is God's word to people. Very important you make a huge distinction between those two things. Every once in a while, I'm going to say something that, you know, I probably will live long enough to regret. Why? Man, not God. I may blow, it's not my intent, certainly isn't my desire, but every once in a while, I may say something, I look back on it, you know, I could have said that better. And I'm sure glad I didn't write it down and hand it to you, so you could wave it at me, like I just did all those books. And by the way, a large, throw out the Book of Mormon, but a large percentage of those books are good books. Some of them have a lot of biblical truth in them. But only in so far, is they line up with what God's Word actually teaches. Real important distinction. And by the way, Pastor Chuck Smith would agree with me. So would John Piper. So would John MacArthur. They would agree. They would say, follow what God's Word says. Now, does that mean we can't learn anything from books? Absolutely not. It's not what I'm trying to tell you. I have a lot of books. I just showed you a handful of the more than 2,000 actual books I have. Okay, So I read a lot of books. But you know what I find every once in a while? Hmm. I can't back that up with Scripture. Return to what your Bible plainly says. Let's ask the Lord to speak. Father, we do. Just come and we want to hear what your Spirit has to say to the church today. Lord, there are some notes on these pages, but the important thing is the conveyance of the truth of what your word plainly states. And so God, help us to glean from that. Help us to have that unity of the spirit and that bond of peace. Help us to rightly take our doctrine and place it in that category of that duty, Lord, that we have done what you've asked us to do because your word has declared it. We bless you. We praise you, we give you this time. God, speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 4 here in Ephesians 4. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through you all and in you all. So here's the problem, amen? Which God is it? Is it the Methodist God? Is it the Calvary God? Is it the Baptist God? Is it the Episcopalian God? Is it the God of the harbinger? Or is it the God that's plainly taught through his infallible word? It is that God. Hence the test I just gave you. Which you all passed, by the way. Good job. Straight A's for each of you. There is actually one church... And that church is very clearly defined in God's Word. The problem is mankind's interpretation of it. The problem is what man has said about what God's Word says. I had a unique opportunity this week as I was debating with a couple of very bright individuals, and we were actually going to the traditional debate of all debates with regard to theology, the difference between the Arminian point of view and the Calvinist point of view. Can I tell you something? Both are actually in Scripture. And the same Scriptures are used by one side as by the other, largely to prove their point. And so there has to be some way for us to hear from the Lord on these issues. And I believe there is. That's why it says there's one body. That's why it says there's one spirit. That's why it says you're called in one hope. Uh, Notice the use of the word one. It means one. It means singular. But does it mean that there's just singularly a one church in a physical sense? That's no. So there must be some meaning that we can derive from this when we talk about one. What is that one? And that's what we want to see this morning. Today many people attempt to unite Christians in, frankly, a way that's not biblical. And that way, we know, is the way of tolerance. We just simply accept everything out of hand. One person says it, that's the reason for the books. Because I can tell you that R.C. Sproul and Chuck Smith don't agree on quite a few things. Why do I draw that to your attention? Because I believe... Both of them are going to heaven, and both of them love the Lord, and both of them are tremendous men of God, both of them are great authors, and both of them have been mightily used of the Lord. But there's some differences. But those differences don't lie in the plain teaching of Scripture. They lie in the interpretation of the plain teaching of Scripture. How one person views it versus what another person views. But from God's perspective, there's one universal church. Can I tell you, y'all got some Pentecostal background? Pastor Chuck used to be Foursquare. It kind of moved a little bit the other way now. You, You see, the church oftentimes forgets that we are one. And so we start talking about our Pentecostal friends or our Baptist friends or our non-Calvary friends or those who are around the world that maybe have a little bit of a, a spin one way or another that perhaps they believe, Scripture says, and when you get down to it, as I shared with you before, God was attempting to say exactly one thing when he authored Scripture in every single case. We are to observe the text, to interpret the text, and apply the text. That's where the problem comes in, not in what God said and not what he intended. The Holy Spirit authored it. Holy men of old wrote it down. There's a meaning to the text. We need to cut some slack in that interpretation of the meaning because we don't always get it right. We need to remember that there are fallible human beings that are used in this process. But from God's perspective, there's exactly one church. And you can't make up what you believe about church on your own. And why am I saying that? Because there are people, just as I shared with you last time we were together, and really two Sundays ago, that want to purely emphasize love. That is both unbiblical and ungodly. Why do I say that? Because you can carry that to such an extreme that you throw out every bit of biblical doctrine. You no longer live a sinless life. You say love covers it all. You no longer confront sin. You say love covers it all. You can become absolutely so bent to that particular direction that you toss out what this says. And I've had people look me in the eye and go, don't talk to me about doctrine." I'm just loving, and because I'm loving and God is love, I'm okay. And all of a sudden it doesn't matter what you do. Can't support that with this. So that's not sound doctrine. We have to trust in what God's Word plainly states to us. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, please, for a moment. Gonna flip back a few pages. Verse 15, it says there in Romans 10, And how shall they preach unless they are sent? For as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Notice verse 17, Underline it, circle it, highlight it, do what you must. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We get our doctrine by hearing the Word of God and then doing what it says. So when somebody comes and they say, well, I just believe in the red letters in my Bible, that's unsound doctrine, even though they happen to be the words of Jesus. Because God took an awful lot of time writing a whole lot of your Bible that's not in red letters, amen? Amen. And if you rightly interpret everything else, you're going to find out those red letters also point you back to the black ones. And eventually you're going to go, wow, so that's who he was talking about. We need to make sure that we understand there's one God with one message who gave us one type of church that functions in many different ways, by the way, who has all kinds of different people in it, but there's really, from God's perspective a singular message to your Bible, and that is to be lived out by us as best as we possibly can. And so he gives us seven basic spiritual realities or doctrines. Notice what they are. The only place you can find them, for then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, is to identify them from what Scripture says about them. Not what R.C. Sproul thinks, not what Chuck Smith thinks, not what Jeff Gill thinks, by the way. But what does your Bible actually say about these things? There is one body, and that one body consists of several jillion parts. Amen? Your body consists of trillions of cells, but it's only one body. It has multiple sets of systems, but it's got one body, and this is a beautiful picture of how the church actually functions. The body is singular, but it has many cohesive parts that are all supposed to work together. Amen? So the Episcopalian church doesn't have a different ultimate goal than the Baptist church, does it? The goal is to preach Christ and Him crucified alone for the remission of sin, to present the gospel in such a way that people are saved, and then they live as new creations in Christ Jesus. And I'm oversimplifying for a reason. But you know what? Those who maybe are Episcopalians who wear a nice cassock and they, you know, preach a liturgy or whatever, reaches a specific group of people that I might not be able to reach. So there is a place for the Episcopalian liturgy. There is a place for the Pentecostal church for those that maybe they're just hung up on their emotions. Maybe they enjoy that type of worship. There's a place for us kind of that I think we're pretty well in the middle as Calvary Chapel. There is one body, but there are many functions within that body, and all of us should be part of the one body, which means we're actually a believer, and then part of a local body, which means we're part of an organ or a cell or part of the, the general workings of the church. And so there's one body. How many Holy Spirits are there? Exactly one. And when you get saved, where does that Holy Spirit go? Inside of each of you. Amen? So if there's one Bible that communicates this message, and there's one church of which we all belong generally, and specifically we're our own little part, and there's one Spirit, then how much diversity can you expect to see? A whole bunch. Amen? And again, the body and the Spirit... You, you have a, a general sense that you are you, amen? It's a way to look at this. You go out into the world, you go out as a little Christ. That's what Christian means. And so you're presenting Christ to the world. And maybe some of us are kidneys and some of us are spleens and livers. Uh, some of us are brains, some of us not so much. Some of us are fingers and some of us are toes and we need all parts, amen? I love that. Because maybe you're not, you know, maybe your best gift is not being used in in some spectacular way. Maybe you're a behind the scenes person. You're absolutely essential to the function of the body of Christ. And so the Spirit can as much use the one part as the Spirit can use the other, and it's the same Spirit, one, the Holy Spirit, that's inside of each one of us. It shouldn't cause division. One hope in your calling. It refers to the hope of the church in general. And that would be the return of the Lord in heaven. Amen? That's our hope. Can I tell you the Baptists don't have a different hope than the Calvary folks and the Episcopalian folks and the Presbyterian folks and the Anglican folks and anybody who names the name of Jesus. If you're four square or maybe you're, you know, you're in the assemblies of God, there's one hope. Because there's only one king. We should all be looking forward to the one hope. The next one is a tough one. It's not by accident. It's in the middle of the seven. You've got three on either side of it. The fourth one is one Lord. What does that mean? What does the word Lord mean to you? I can tell you the technical definition of it, the easiest one. It's a single word. It means master. So if there's one body and one spirit and one hope and there is one master, then guess how we should be unified by what that one master has declared about how the one church with the one spirit and the one hope ought to function. That's why this is so important. Because this should be your Bible. This book that we hold in our hands is the final authority on all matters of life and godliness. That's what it says about itself. This is where we get our doctrine. Not from this. This may help us to understand what this says. It may not. This is the Bible. This is not. You get the picture? We need to be careful where we get our doctrine from. And again, there's a lot of good doctrine in this book, by the way. Not trying to make the distinction that those books are useless. They're actually quite valuable. But this is the Bible. This is where we get that. There is one Lord, and if that word means master, and there is a supreme master in each of our lives, guess how we should be functioning? under the lordship of the one master who defined himself and all that he should want us to know about himself and how we function according to his manual, which he calls the Bible. If we followed this, all the division that exists in the church would go away. The division in the church would go away if everybody simply did what the Bible plainly teaches. The problem is, we have man interjected into that. And then we can't get along. Because we have those who believe in a pre-millennial rapture of the church, and those who believe there is no rapture, no millennial, call all millennialists, who believe that simply the next thing in the prophetic timeline is the Lord's coming back. We're all sitting around throwing darts at each other. I don't believe that's well-pleasing to God. And I have been guilty myself at times. So I don't preach to the choir, I simply say choir. uh, We need to probably rethink how we do those things. And realize that there's exactly one Lord. There is, the fifth one, one faith. Now how do we get faith? What does your Bible say about how we get faith? Uh, It is a gift. It's not of you, it's of God. Not any of us can boast in it. So if there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, and there's one faith, and that faith is a gift, then don't you think we ought to all be able to get along? So the problem is not with what the one Lord says about himself, and the problem is not about the measure of faith we have, because that's a gift. The problem is what we do with what we have. That's what causes the issues. You see that singular faith that Jude says was delivered once unto all the saints. There, in the book, little tiny book of Jude, verse three, it was given to us once for everybody. That's why there was such amazing unity in the first century church, because they didn't have all these. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't sit around at the Council of Dort. They, they weren't too worried about what. Joe Schmo said they were worried about what God said. And so at the time they had the Old Testament followed by the New, and as we have that revelation now available to all of us, it ought to be a little easier for us to come together as opposed to push each other apart. One faith. The next thing, one baptism. And it's speaking of that very thing we've already talked about, that infilling of the Holy Spirit. It comes to each one of you. You are not a child of God unless you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's what your Bible says. I get that from here, by the way. That's what it says. If you are a child of God, you're indwelt by the Spirit of God. Period. Your body is, in fact, as First Corinthians 12 says, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Resides within you. So if there's one Lord, one faith, one hope, one... Baptism, then how come the church is such a mess at times? Because we're not following what that one spirit that dwells inside of us says. Because that one spirit defined itself, didn't it? Pretty clearly. Gentle, meek, humble. Long-suffering, kind, tender. It also told us what it's not. Boastful, proud, arrogant vainglorious, contentious, strife-filled, angry. Do you see how easy it becomes to discern what's of the Lord and what's not? So when two Christians are standing toe-to-toe, screaming and yelling at each other about you know whose doctrine is correct, how much do you think that glorifies the Lord? Not much. It doesn't mean that differences don't matter. I want to be careful here. I think there are things that are unique to each church. That's that part uniqueness that we can look at. I'm not talking about attempting to do as best you can and tre- teaching what God's Word says, but rather to say that where we disagree on non-essential things, my brother is an amillennialist. He does not believe in the rapture of the church, but I guarantee you when we sit down and pray, we're praying to the same Lord, through the same faith, in the same baptism of the Spirit, believing that God is hearing our prayers, and when we get to heaven, he's going to figure out there was a rapture of the church. We need to look at it more that way, Amen. I always tell everybody, you know what, I think we're all going to have our doctrine squared away when we get there. Because I don't think all of us have it completely correct. I know I don't. You can use my name first if you want. If I had a book to hold up, I'd have held up my own first. That one baptism. And finally, why? There's one God and Father, amen? You see, when we look at it from that perspective, then the rest of what's said here all of a sudden makes sense. As we are going to see. You see, Paul emphasizes God the Father. Whose plan was it to send Jesus to the earth? Whose son was it that came? Whose father God's, amen? He didn't send a different Jesus for the Episcopalians and the uh, Presbyterians. God the Father's plan was that all men should be saved through the power of his Son. Amen? So if there's disunity with that regard, Where do you suppose it comes from? It comes from the enemy of our souls, the one who hates us. That type of disunity, when people who claim that they are the redeemed of the Lord cannot sit down and say, you know what, let's have a conversation about where you get that particular doctrine. And when that doctrine can be either proven or disproven from Scripture then even if that maybe is not the direction we should go, we ought to be able to say, just like I just said to you, when we get to heaven, we'll all have our doctrine squared away. Let's seek to save the lost while we're here together. Let's preach Christ crucified until he takes us home. Let's take our basic Bible doctrine from the Bible, by the way. It's kind of a good thing to use the Bible if you're teaching the Bible doctrine. Amen? And maybe put some of these other things aside. Maybe just back off a little bit. I'm working hard myself at this. To say, you know what? If you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, my Bible says you'll be saved. For there is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. Amen? Do you get saved by knowing your eschatology? No. Do you get saved by knowing creation science? No. Do you get saved by being able to explain some of the greater doctrines of faith, maybe sanctification or maturation? I know a lot of Christians who haven't got a clue how to explain justification. They don't know. You use the word propitiation, they think it has something to do with diet and exercise. They don't know. You're going to heaven by believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism, one Father God. There's only one plan. There's this big thing called the body of Christ. And we are all working together towards that end to bring people into a right doctrinal relationship that comes from the Bible. And frankly, it is mankind that's made that very complex. It's not the Bible. And the fact that the church argues and haggles over it is proof positive of what I just said. Because you can go to a, assemblies of God and have people tell you that unless you speak in tongues, you're not going to heaven. thief on the cross never spoke in tongues. Not one person held in Abraham's bosom ever spoke in tongues. It was a New Testament thing. Be careful. I'm trying to be a little more careful myself. Because the church unified is the church glorified in Christ. Amen? The church unified is the church glorified in Christ. We should be building bridges, not putting up walls. Verse 7, but each one of you... I'm playing my own accompaniment right now with my foot... But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of whose gift? Christ's. And therefore, he says, when he ascended, he led captivity captive, he gave gifts to men. And then he quotes from the 68th Psalm, which is this uh, wonderfully prophetic psalm about Jesus. And now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he first also descended into the lowest parts of the earth. For he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. So from heaven's perspective, everything in the Old Testament and everything in the New speaks about the one way of salvation, the truth and the life, Jesus who is the Christ. There's not an Old Testament message and a New Testament message. There's exactly one message because there's one faith. One body, one Lord, one hope, one baptism. One obedience, then, is another way to look at it. Because God isn't trying to save people many different ways. He's trying to get all the different parts to work together. To accomplish His part. And so He says, And to that end you might say, prefacing verse 11, He's going to fulfill all things. How is he going to do that? He gave himself to some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. You, You see, we have a common message and a common goal. And we have a common tool. We have a common empowerment, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. We have a common method of salvation. Nobody gets saved the Baptist way. Okay? Can I tell you that? There's no such thing as the Baptist way of salvation. There's no such thing as the Presbyterian way of salvation. There's exactly one way and one truth and one life and no one comes to the Father but by the one way and truth and life. Amen? So this disunity that we see in the world and in the church is not because of God the Father's plan. It's because of the way mankind has interpreted that plan. That is why... Be careful where you get your plan. This may have the right plan in it. And in fact, largely it does. But it's still not the Word of God. And so if the Word of God teaches something other than what the book you read says, follow the Word of God. Period. And so he gives these four offices, apostles. These were men who saw Jesus, taught by Jesus personally, and preached in the New Testament era. There are no apostles alive today on this earth. Period. Anyone that claims to be an apostle doesn't understand the plain teaching of Scripture. Now, having said that, there are churches that think that they have apostles in them. So to them, I say, if you're referring to the preaching of the Word of God, then you are correct because you're speaking forth those things. But if you're referring to the office, my Bible says that apostles learned from the Lord Jesus personally, that they met him. So the Apostle Paul, as he was there on the road to Damascus, breathing threats of murders, ran into Jesus. You're all sitting there going, huh? We have to be careful. Prophets, we primarily look at that as the office, if you will, of predicting future events. Can I remind you, that's not even actually what the word means. The word doesn't mean exclusively people who speak things that are yet future. In a New Testament sense, it actually means to proclaim, to speak forth. So people... Do prophesy. You can. If you take the word of God and read it to somebody, you can actually prophesy in their life. It means to speak forth the truth. So, of course, things that were spoken of the future were prophetic in nature. But when you know what God has already declared and you speak it to somebody, that's speaking prophetically. So if I tell somebody, look, God's word says thus and so. I tell somebody that, that they need to receive Jesus Christ to be saved I am actually speaking prophetically into their life because the Bible says that very plainly so he gives these offices that we might understand that evangelists that word simply means bearers of good news so the office of evangelists someone who bears that good news very important So when you speak the gospel, what are you doing? You're evangelizing. You can do that with your life. You can do that certainly with the words. But you get the model for it from your Bible. And so there are people with the office, with the gift, someone whose principal function is an evangelist, somebody whose principal function is that of speaking forth the word of God. And then finally, the fourth thing, pastor and teacher, or pastor-teacher. A teacher takes the truth and communicates it. The word pastor means shepherd. And so these two things are shepherd and elder or another way to look at it. Someone who rightly divides the word of truth and someone who tends the flock. Those are important things. Now having said those things, you can do that in almost any context. As long as I preach the word of God, as I speak forth the truth of God, as I follow what the apostles actually said, Model what they did. I'm getting pretty close to what the Lord has said, how we should function on this earth. And so he brings forth this unity by saying these offices that I established were to help you be in the one faith, the one Lord, the one hope, the one baptism, and the one God who's over everything. Not to try and create some other way to be a New Testament prophet or to be a New Testament prophet. evangelist that's different than an Old Testament evangelist. You know what? As as we read our Bibles, it's speaking forth truth to us. There are some things that haven't come forth yet. We don't know all the bits and pieces. We know some of them. It's speaking to us. Our job is simply speak the message that's been spoken. And what happens then is that unity grows. Verse 12. All these things are given for... Verse 12 says, so pastors, teachers, evangelists, those who prophetically speak forth the word of God, and those who were the apostles, those who have spoken that truth into our world, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So what we're doing this morning, hopefully, is for the equipping of the saints and for the building up of the body of Christ. Amen? That's why we're here. That's it. That's not so I can show you some new truth that I gleaned. It's so that you can understand the truth that's already been spoken. So that you can get the truth of what God wants to say to you this morning. And sometimes, hopefully and prayerfully, that gets done rather easily. The Lord's speaking and and working. Sometimes I mess it up. Every once in a while I'll say something it's just like, "Eh, that was Jeff. That wasn't the Holy Spirit. That wasn't that central message. That was something that came from somewhere else. And for that, I beg your indulgence and your forgiveness. But the message is a central message given to us by God. So that you're all equipped. So that you're all built up. So that you can go forth and do the work of the ministry. As I prayerfully am doing myself. Till we all come into the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You get the picture? Where do we understand the stature and the measure of the fullness of Christ? It's right here. This is the deepest volume of understanding that we have about the stature, the nature, and the fullness of Christ, and being perfect in Him, isn't it? If we just simply read this, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Remember what Romans 10 says. And as we apply those passages, ultimately what happens, the more of this I apply to my life, the more like Jesus I am. It's relatively simple. All of a sudden, we're walking around in that truth. You see, you can do that for yourself. perfectly we do that here, but you can do that for yourself. You can grow in that that we should no longer notice this, be children. As we bring this to a close this morning, there's a goal here. Not to be tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. You notice that? Why? Because the every wind of doctrine doesn't come from God. How many lords are there? One. How many faiths are there? One. How many baptisms? One. How many gods? One. So the problem with the wind of doctrine. Those strange things that don't line up with what God's Word says, the problem with those things are, is they can't be backed up by Scripture, and so they're to and fro. They're all over the place. One thing one week, something else the next. That's not God. God was not divided of heart when He authored His Word by the power of the Holy Spirit. He gave us a message. It's correct. Notice by the trickery of men, the cunning of craftiness and deceitful plotting. Sometimes the enemy gets in. There are some folks on this earth that probably ought to not be, not, not be teaching the Word of God. They're in it for the wrong reason, wrong motivation. And that's not to be critical. You can tell by their fruit. You, you can look at what's going on through their ministry and you go, I don't think that's of the Lord. Not because I say so, because your Bible says so. So it doesn't mean we believe everything. It means that we believe the truth. That's why it goes on. But speaking the, circle it, underline it, highlight it, draw a line of the two words, the truth in love. You have to have truth in love. Not just love and not just truth, but the truth in love. That's probably one of my biggest failures at times as a pastor. Sometimes I'm a little heavy on the truth and a little light on the love, and sometimes I'm light on the love and heavy on the truth. That's That's the vehicle, that's the vessel. That's not an excuse, that's an admission, by the way. That's to simply say, go back to what the truth of the word says and go back to what God's love has declared about himself in your Bible. If it doesn't match up with what your Bible says, then throw out what man has said back to what Scripture says. That we might grow up into all things, into Him who is the head. So it goes right back to the central message of the one Lord, one faith, one hope. You get the picture, yeah? It should turn us back to the real Jesus. So that when we go home, when we go into the workplace, when we open our Bibles for ourselves, you're not getting a different Jesus here on Sunday morning or on Wednesday than you are when you go home and open your Bible for yourself. You're not getting a different plan of salvation when you go home, when you go to another church. There's only one plan of salvation. You've got some pretty strange manifestations of that, but there's really only one way to be saved, and that's confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the plain teaching of Scripture. from whom the whole body is joined and knit together. And I love this. As it wraps up, it gives us this picture of taking all of these independent yarns and weaving them into a blanket, something that's useful, a sock or a sweater, whatever you want to use as your analogy. You see, lots of different colors of yarn. Lots of different ways to express that, that beauty. But it's for a common purpose. It's to bring us into that Beautiful picture of who God is and what He's like that's described in your Bible. By what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. You see the picture? This tremendous diversity that is somehow brought together in unity because of the one Lord. Because of that oneness that we have in Christ. It's okay that we disagree at times, it's really all right. Because in our humanness, every one of us, myself included, myself first. You know, we're going to have things It's just like, ah, I don't know where he got that. But from God's perspective, he's knitting us all together into one. This incredible oneness. And that causes growth in the body for the edification of it, self, and love bringing all these very diverse strands into that beautiful loom that is the work of the Spirit. And only the Spirit can do that. It can Only the Spirit can move that shuttle back and forth across that loom and take all those different colored threads and so, If you've ever watched that process being done, like a, especially like a Navajo blanket, you look at it, it's just like, there's no way in the world that's going to turn into anything beautiful. It's all because of the guy who's doing the weaving. Amen? Hopefully that's the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the Spirit's work in the church and Lord, we ask that you'd help us to rightly discern your truth, rightly divide the word of truth, that when we're in doubt, that we return to what your word says to that central message, that you preach to us through it, that there isn't Three different Christs. There's only one. That there's not a Holy Spirit that's a different type in different churches. There's only one Holy Spirit. There's only one God the Father. We've all been baptized into just simply you, Christ. You, Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to be unified. Help us to willingly take our place in the garment that you're weaving Lord, help us to be built up and edified and strengthened for the purposes that you have for us. We pray that you'd bless us, Lord. Watch over us, mold us, shape us. Use us, Lord, as a garment of praise. That you, Jesus, might be seen by the world. And that the world through you might be saved. We love you. We bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.